Hello, folks. Dr. Maurice Selby here, medical director, producer, and co-host of Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM and the Health in Harlem podcast. While we strive to bring you the most up-to-date, reliable, evidence-based information to help you live the healthiest life possible, this show does not substitute for an evaluation by a trained and licensed medical professional. It is highly recommended that any advice or recommendations on medications, treatments, nutrition, fitness, preventive services, etc. be implemented under the guidance and supervision of your primary medical provider or appropriate specialist. With that said, we hope that you enjoy and learn from our program, and please be sure to let us know how we can best serve you in future shows. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen of the listening audience. My name is Maurice Selby. My name is Anastasia. And you're listening to the one and only Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM New York, the voice of Harlem, and the Health in Harlem podcast featured on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, you name it, we can be found there. And uh, before we get into our topic, I just want to apologize for being a talking head on our most recent podcast episode. Um, that was our COVID update, COVID vaccine update number five. And the reason why I say that is because we want this to be a dialogue, right? Um, and so with that said, ladies and gentlemen, Health in Harlem, we are open to your questions, comments, concerns. Definitely post them to our Podbean page. Um, you can also post them to our Facebook page. Uh, many different ways that you can actually email me, M Selby, that's M as in Mary, S E L as in Larry, B as in boy, Y at healthinharlem.org. Just, just get in touch with us, especially if you have questions about the vaccine um, and really questions about COVID, more than willing to get into that. But really, anything that we talk about on this program, we want it to be an open dialogue with you all. So I just wanted to get that out there before we move on.com. But it is Black Maternal Health Week, ladies and gentlemen, April 11th to April 17th. And with that said, that is our topic for tonight. And this is quote from the vice president herself. Black women in our country are facing a maternal health crisis. This is Kamala Harris that said this. We know the reason why systemic racial inequalities and implicit bias. And uh, this came from Kamala Harris, Vice President Kamala Harris. And actually, the White House issued its first ever proclamation on Black maternal health um, at the start of Black Maternal Health Week. And that is because this is a true crisis that we have on our hands. Black women are three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes uh, than white women. And this risk increases with age. The CDC says that most pregnancy-related deaths are preventable and that racial and ethnic disparities have persisted over time. Now, we can get into all of that data, but I think this is something that is uh, pretty well known. But one thing that we really need to get to at the start of this program is that uh, aside from just talking about 
the magnitude of this issue, the importance of this issue, we are going to be prescriptive in this program, right? We're going to try to give you some tips and really just give you some information so we can arm ourselves to really deal with this crisis um, individually, as communities, and as a society. And to join us in that effort, we have two experts, uh, two of my close friends, too, <laughs> at that, that are joining us. Uh, we have Dr. Marvell Maloney. She is a private practice obstetrician and gynecologist um, in the tri-state area. And we also have Dr. Praise Augustus. She is a, an obstetrician and gynecologist practicing as a hospitalist, um, also in the tri-state area. And real quick, I just want to say I love you all so much. I miss you guys. And also, I'm so proud that you jumped in uh, to join us. So we all go way back, ladies and gentlemen, just real quick. We went to Downstate, SUNY Downstate College of Medicine, um, got a great education there, had a great experience there. So we got to shout out Downstate one. And hey, Downstate. <laughs> And I want to welcome you all to the program. So they know I've been involved with this program for many years now, right? Since we all um, sort of went through our training together. And this is the first time that they joined me on the, on the program. So that's why I'm so happy. And just to see how far we've come um, in our you know education and professional lives. So thank you so much for having us. Yeah. No, yeah thanks, Ma. This is a great reunion <laughs> right now. <laughs> So yeah, welcome to the program, and we're just gonna we're just gonna jump right in, um, basically. And as we, we said, you know, in a recent report um, that included data from thirteen matern thirteen state maternal mortality review committees, it noted several contributing factors in each pregnancy related death, um, and they basically found uh, these factors that were pretty consistent, right, in all of these cases. Access to appropriate high quality care was an issue missed or delayed diagnoses, lack of knowledge among patients and providers around warning signs. And ultimately, the report concluded that more than 60% of these deaths could have been prevented by addressing these factors at multiple levels. That's why in this program tonight, we're going to highlight the continuing challenges facing Black mothers in this country and around the world, but also we aim to talk about some potential, potential solutions. So when we talk about this issue, uh, what would you say are some of the contributing factors, right, um, as far as the outcomes with Black mothers and mothers-to-be? Well, I think a lot of it starts off with, as you said, access to care. Access to care before we even become pregnant. Um, so we know that obesity is something that is um, drastically affecting this nation, um, mm -hmm. I think. Um, communities of color have access to, um, you know, less fresh foods. Um, they're at higher risk of obesity, high blood pressure, diabetes. Um, and so when you put that, all of those factors together with pregnancy, um, it puts the patient at a higher risk of complications, just that baseline. So before they even become pregnant, I think a lot of women of color already have a lot of risk factors in general health. Mm -hmm. And then we add pregnancy on top of that. Um, and then that becomes an uh, issue. Got it. Um, so with obesity, um, mothers are more at risk of having preterm births, um, babies being admitted to the ICU, uh, different 
you know, complications that are associated just with obesity. And then, you know, each, each um, medical issue adds a problem for the pregnancy. So access to care in that these conditions or these, we can even just say problems, right? Especially medical problems that Black mothers basically come to the table with these. These could have been prevented by having regular access to good, mm-hmm. high quality medical care. And, and also uh, the there's like a huge distrust in the system at baseline um, with the idea of being used as guinea pigs or the doctor doesn't understand them or doesn't relate to them. I can't tell you how many times I've had patients when I used to be in private practice who said, I only picked you because I saw your picture online. Mm. Not I've because they didn't know anything too. about me. You know, they don't know my credentials, nothing. They were like, I saw your picture and I wanted to come see you and I want to stay with you. So that's how I was able to build a huge part of my following because my practice when I started, it was like a little bit more diverse when I started for my panel of patients. And as I continued, it only kind of segued into Hispanic, African-American, Caribbean women. So it's also having doctors that you feel like you can relate to. I think that also plays a role in why there may be these issues with black mothers um, and mothers to be. I mean, I, I think it's very important to be able to, you know, walk into a room and feel comfortable and feel heard. I think with a lot of things that are preventable, patients may not necessarily, they're afraid to speak up because they're afraid that they're going to be judged or think that they're mm-hmm. being dumb or being ridiculous. Um, so I think, you know, having a physician where you feel like, okay, I can relate to this person and I can tell them, you know, when I'm having a problem and be heard, even if it's something minute. So in your practice um and and really just from your patients have you heard of like specific examples where maybe they felt like they weren't being heard or specific examples where they felt like they just didn't or weren't able to have that sort of trust in their provider every day Hmm. every day I don't think that it's necessarily I don't think it's always going to be you know that the physician that they were seeing prior didn't listen. I think Mm -hmm. that sometimes it's just a a comfort level. Am I comfortable talking to you? So I feel like I can bring up, you know, whatever day-to-day problems that I'm having um, because I feel comfortable. If I don't feel comfortable, I'm less likely to share what's going on with me. So that limits um, the the provider's ability to help me because Mm -hmm. I am not sharing either. So mm. it goes both ways. Do you ever feel like when uh, patients come to you that they feel like they have been not taken seriously, right? Because of certain behavioral aspects or even cultural background of those patients as black women? I mean, I feel like you always have to step back and look at the full picture, right? So you may have a patient here. She's obese. She has all of these problems that are going on. But then you step back. And is it that she doesn't have access to insurance? So there are a lot of patients, because we're cutting back on Medicaid, a lot of patients don't have access to insurance. And even if they do have insurance during the pregnancy, 
um, as soon as they deliver, the insurance is gone. So how mm. do I go and get my regular checkups? How do I make sure that my blood pressure is controlled? Who do I see about my diabetes? Um, and then, you know, with the cutback in Medicaid, a lot of the um, clinics that would be open in predominantly minority areas have closed. So now you look at um, how far does this patient have to travel to find a physician to take care of them? Does this patient have other children? Do they have to worry about childcare? You know, if it's going to take me two buses to get to the appointment, then it's hard for me to come to this appointment if I have small children to take care of. So it's not a matter of necessarily being irresponsible. It's what are we doing as a community to make it more difficult for these patients to be cared for? Mm. I agree with Marvell, um, and I've honestly been guilty of some of these um, problems are probably perpetuating that because, you know, we're overbooked for our panel and we have a 15 minute grace period. And after 15 minutes, at least when I'm like super booked, I don't see the patient, you know, you'll have to reschedule. I make exceptions sometimes depending on what the issue is mm -hmm. or the nature of the appointment. But um, like Marvell said, sometimes it's difficult for them to even get to the appointment. And then when they finally reach, like the provider doesn't see you, you know, and that's for multiple reasons. Like I was in private practice, I was in the office and then I had the pressure of needing to leave or go to the hospital or I would have to finish my panel by a certain time in order to make it to the hospital, especially if somebody is in labor. So it's not like. It wasn't intentional on my part because I would love to see everybody. It's an mm -hmm. honor that anybody would want to see me. Um, but those are also um, issues that we as providers should take in mind. And as I became a hospitalist, I became a little bit more, I would say, kinder <laughs> to the late patients. That's what's up. Thank I God. would tell them, you know, I can't see you now, but you can come at this later time during the day, you know? If you're okay with waiting 30 minutes as I see you in between patients, then I can do it, but I can't see you at your scheduled time that you intended. Um, but with that said, you know, you also have to take even a further step back on why there is this systemic racism. There's just not enough of us, you know, 5% of Latino doctors and then like maybe pushing 6% of black doctors. Like, what is that? Yeah, true story. You know? We don't have enough. And it's only like in the 1960s when the women's rights movement and the whole integration of like African-Americans and other minorities into the school system that just started. Those people are still alive, you know, True story. <laughs> uh, who contributed to this positive change. So there's just also a lot of grandfathering um, that's been going on that people have been able to break through like, you know, the pipeline programs that we actually did from City College. And then we met up with Marvell in at, um, SUNY Downstate. Um, so I think it's a little bit more complicated and not as straightforward uh, as we would think because there's multiple layers. And that barrier with the systemic racism definitely decreased the amount of minority doctors that are available mm -hmm. to relate to these patients. 
And then another point um, that I, I, I want to make is if you're not exposed to something on a regular basis, it's difficult for you to pick that thing out. So if I'm a physician and I'm taking care of, you know, mostly um, privately insured patients or, you know, low risk patients, it's more difficult for me to identify um, when things are changing in a high risk patient. So where me and Praise did our residency training um, was a very high volume, high risk um, patient population. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot easier for you to pick out, okay, this patient is high risk for preeclampsia. I'm going to watch her very closely because as soon as her blood pressure changes from this to this, then I, I know that she's starting to, you know, get on the spectrum of preeclampsia. She might not be preeclampsic right away, mm -hmm. but she's moving towards that. Versus if I never see that or it's not something that I regularly see, it's a lot easier for me to miss it until the last second. And mm -hmm. at that point, mom is at a higher risk of, uh, you know, complication, risk of death, risk mm -hmm. of things just bad, not going really about that outcome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And one thing that you sort of hit on right there, right, was just this concept of risk, which um, as Kamala Harris said, right, this is something that has persisted for <laughs> decades, something that we know has been a problem in terms of uh, racism, right, and, and disparate care. And with that said, some of the other factors that just put Black women at a higher risk, you would think exactly what you said, right, um, just off of being black, you have a higher risk of having a bad outcome, right? Three times more likely to have a pregnancy related death. And so the thought, or at least my thinking on this would be, hey, every black patient I have is maybe in a high risk category. I'm going to watch that patient very closely. I'm going to take their complaints seriously, right? And that's not happening. Hard. I think it's a yeah. human nature where it's hard if you, if it's not if it's not something that you're seeing regularly, mm -hmm. you feel like it's less likely to happen to you as mm -hmm. a physician. It's less likely that my patient is going to have this thing because I never see it. So, mm -hmm. you know, what is the likelihood? So what is the likelihood of this one patient having it? Mm -hmm. And so can I just, you know, wait it out and see if it gets to be very severe? And then by the time you wait it out, you're in a bad situation. It might be too late. Got it. But and the point really that I was driving at was that if it's hard for you as a as a, a black clinician, right, to and again, you don't want to be too aggressive in maybe treatment or even in diagnosing. Right. Because that could also set the patient up for possible complications. Uh, but if it's hard for you to tease out as a black woman taking care of right soon to be black mothers, then it's even harder maybe for other groups. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't specifically okay. referring to myself. So like I said, where Got we it. trained, we saw a lot of really sick people. So I am always very <laughs> on top of it. Oh, your blood pressure changed by five points. Got it. What's yeah. happening here? Can you check your blood pressures at home? So I'm always on high alert, which like you said, um, sometimes it doesn't mean anything and the patient mm -hmm. is fine. Um, but I'm talking about people that may have trained in an area where they're not exposed to those yes. high risk patients. And then now I'm seeing high risk patients in my practice. How do I take care of them? Or how do I, how do I recognize this thing that was, I only saw in a textbook. Mm -hmm. 
and it's not a reality to me. And so maybe part of that disconnect is, or at least for, and I think especially for other providers, like you said, that are not familiar maybe with taking care of black women is that we miss maybe some of these cues, whether it is a complaint, right? Which based on this sort of cultural labeling, um, even the demonization of black mothers, if we sort of go back and we look at Jamila K. Taylor, she's the director of healthcare reform and the senior fellow at the Century Foundation, um, basically wrote an article in the Journal of Law, Medicine and Ethics, basically talking about structural racism and, you know, that this is essentially a, a very powerful social determinant of health and it operates all across the, the care spectrum, right, um, from uh, sort of the behavioral practices of patients to even how we operate as clinicians and taking care of patients. And based on that, right, this whole history of racism and oppression in this country, even as providers, right, we sort of maybe miscues because of things like implicit bias um, and things of that and things of that nature, really just things that we, to a degree, can't be con in control of. And so with that said, the big question, I guess, becomes how can we sort of overcome that? Which as a clinician, as you said, right, you already know that sort of some women come in there at a higher risk, but for other providers, it pre presents sort of, a, I would argue, probably an almost insurmountable challenge if you're not aware of it. Mm -hmm. And I, I had a, I had one of my colleagues who is a, a white older man come to me one day and he said to me, how, how, how can I, you know, change my implicit bias? Because my daughter says, you know, that there are a lot of biases I may have as an mm. older white man. And, and so I want to have this conversation with you as a young black physician as to, you know, how can I overcome it? And I thought about it. And I think the only thing that I was able to really come up with was taking a moment and stopping and being self-aware. Mm. So one of the things that he admitted was he um, had a certain preconceived notion or bias towards his Medicaid patients versus his uh, privately insured patients. Mm -hmm. um, I think the driving factor behind that in a lot of settings is money um, because the Medicaid patients the reimbursements are going to be less than your privately um, mm -hmm. insured patients and so I think human nature you will take a little bit more time with the privately insured patient mm -hmm. so I said to him don't look at the insurance before you see the patient go in to the room not knowing is it a Medicaid patient or a privately insured patient? And even if the patient is late or the patient behaves a certain way, stop and try to think, why is this patient behaving this way? What is the reason why this patient may have been late? Be self-aware of the fact that you're the physician and you're the one that's interacting and providing a service and, you know, just being very self-aware mm -hmm. try not to go into the room knowing the insurance because that's gonna that's gonna buy your perspective mm -hmm. right away as soon as you walk into the room 
Um, and then try to be patient and be aware, self-aware. I agree. It's being self-aware for the sake of the patient. And also I feel like we need to be self-aware of ourselves. <laughs> that makes any sense. Because sometimes you think, or sometimes I think like, oh, I'm a black person. I can relate to the black people. I don't have implicit biases. And you know, you do, or I do. I know I do. So um, things like, things are, are perpetuated in the media, like the angry black woman, you know? Nobody ever says the angry Hispanic woman. <laughs> Mm. so like a hispanic woman comes in and she's chattering a lot and like has a lot has a lot of spice nobody really makes anything of it but if you see the black girl and she tends to be a little bit loud you're like automatically coming off these things off your head or maybe she's ghetto you know that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff i had to realize that for myself um and also that concept of a strong black woman like, what the hell does that mean? Like, really? Mm-hmm. You know, does it mean that it's strong because you're standing up for yourself or it means that you're strong because you know how to suffer in silence? But you never hear those other things like the strong white woman. You know, why is it that these things are being labeled on us? I find that my other patients who are not Hispanic or Black, they tend to talk up a lot about their issues and ask for help more. Um. Mm-hmm. Than Maybe my because, other patients because they don't want to be or at least they don't have the fear of being potentially labeled. labeled. Yeah. So I find that they do they come in with their research uh and like legit research too, not just from like blogs and things like that. They're actually looking and writing down questions before they come to their appointment. Um and I rarely, I honestly rarely see that with the other side. Um so with black and women, it, you're saying yeah. With, Hold on, um, with that black, goes back to, or Hispanic or minority women um, in general. Mm-hmm. That goes back to education, though, right? right. So that's another systemic racist issue that we have in this country is access to education. So if your white patients are better educated, they can read scientific articles, they know where to go find information, mm-hmm. it's a lot easier for them to do that research and come to you and with questions relating to whatever problem they're having. But if the black patients aren't well well educated. They don't know how to read scientific articles. They don't know where to find the information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then it becomes, you know, difficult for them. Yeah. So, so it's that's a matter of systemic racist, you know, issue. It's so many layers. Like there's the education part, and mm. then there's like your the media, and then there's like as Marvel said, being self aware. It's like, it's a process mm-hmm. and a process that we have to respect. And also like sometimes when people start uh, perpetuating it, like in conversations, like in a professional setting, not like when you're with your friends, you need to step up and talk about it. Like that's not okay. Um, so I can't go into detail, but I do agree that there's self-awareness on multiple levels for the patient mm-hmm. and also for yourself. And it's interesting that, you know, even despite educational level, and this is where you know, right? Because I think this is one thing that is, that some people consider up for debate, right? Whether this is something that is more intrinsic to just black women, as far as the outcomes that we see in this country, or if there is something larger that is contributing to all of this, which we've already labeled, right? We put it out there, systemic racism um, and oppression. 
uh, from the beginning, right, the outset of history in this country to now, this is something that's contributing to these outcomes. But to some people out there, this is up for debate, right? And one of the things that really just captures this, um, because we said, right, you have women of other backgrounds, especially women, white women, Caucasian women coming in, they have their research, they're highly educated, they have um, probably a significantly higher socioeconomic status, right? And you would think that a woman coming in, a black woman coming in of equal means, equal education, um, it's still not the case. The pregnancy-related mortality rate for Black women with at least a college degree was 5.2 times that of their white counterparts. And if you want to take it to the next level, we can talk about uh, some of our heroes, <laughs> Serena Williams. We can talk about the Beyonce's. Um, we can talk about uh, just last year, and I can't remember this case off the top of my head, but the young woman that was a pediatric chief, chief. of pediatric yes yeah. oh had, yeah right a terrible outcome and and mm-hmm. still suffered from the same problems and so when we look at them we control for everything race when we control for economic status uh, we control for educational level even geographic location of patients um you right we've seen some of these bad outcomes in some of the best institutions right? Quote unquote, best mm-hmm. institutions that we have um, as far as um, healthcare, the delivery of healthcare, right? And in our healthcare system, we've seen the same thing happen over and over again. And the only thing when you trace it all back is that there's this issue with racism in this country. Uh, and I would well, even say around so, the world. So, I mean, I, I agree. Um, so I, we have a friend who had her first child. She's a physician. Her husband's a physician. Um, she delivered her pregnant. The end of her pregnancy was complicated by preeclampsia. And I think she ended up having to have an emergency cesarean. She came out of the C-section and um, went into DIC. And mm-hmm. she's a physician and she's aware. So she told her husband, I'm not feeling well. I feel like I'm going into DIC. He went, he tried to get a and, resident. And no DIC, would... every, just for the listening audience, is disseminated intravascular coagulation. It's a long, fancy word to say that a lot of bad things are happening in your body. Very dangerous condition. <laughs> um, you're using up all of your clotting factors and you're bleeding out. Mm-hmm. So she told her husband, he tried to get a resident to come. Everyone kept brushing him off, brushing him off until she lost consciousness. Then all of a sudden, they took her back to the OR um, to go back um, to have a, you know, another major surgery. She ended up being in the ICU on a ventilator for four or five days after her mm. first child. And it wasn't a lack of speaking up. It wasn't a lack of being aware she, and a lack of education because she was asking them to draw the appropriate labs to check to see if she was in the ICU but no one was listening to her. Um, so obviously it's not only education, a lack of education mm-hmm. within the country that's the problem. Uh, there, it, there are lots of other factors that are contributing to it. And this was at a so-called top institution wow. in, <laughs> in the tri-state area. I've okay. seen something similar where it was both um, a lack of education and people not really paying attention. Um, I was volunteering one time in the labor delivery ward of a hospital. And on my first day there, I went into a room to ask them 
you know, the new mother, how she's doing. And it was a black woman and it was her first baby. And she was in her, she was young and she was asking me, am I bleeding too much? And she opened the, the bathroom door and the whole toilet seat was like red and in blood. Mm. And I was like, okay, I know nothing, but I know this isn't a good sign. And I had to go get a nurse and I had to go find her nurse. So I went to the nurse, the first nurse I found had to go find her nurse. And then her, <laughs> that nurse was like, oh, it's probably not a big deal. And then I was like, no, you should probably go. Um, and then it's a good thing that she went. And then I had, there were a lot of like physician's assistants that went in there to help her feel, get better. They chalked it up to um, miscommunication between changes. I'm not quite sure if that was really what happened. Um, but for me as a first, the first day, first shift, that was my first experience in uh, labor delivery. And I was like, wow, okay, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, mm -hmm. It was, I'm very thankful that she asked me, right, that she spoke up, that mm -hmm. she was like, hey, like, could I be bleeding this much, um, especially right after giving birth? So I'm very thankful that she at least spoke up because, you know, sometimes they don't. They just say, oh, I'm fine. There's no problems. Mm -hmm. And then you come later and there's a problem. Um, mm -hmm. So so that was like my first day. So it's definitely education. I've seen that education is really important because for some reason, society likes to say that, oh, you should get pregnant. Like, why don't you have children? You should get pregnant. Mm -hmm. You should do this. But pregnancy is a huge, huge thing. Like it's nine months of having a fetus inside you right? There's a lot of changes going on. There's a lot of things that could go wrong in any time. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if there's enough education in general about what we should be looking out for, or um, what are some of the potential risks and when we should be looking out for those risks. Um, so actually going to be my question to y'all is like, what advice would you give to women that are pregnant or are becoming pregnant in terms of when they should really be like, okay, I need to get help? And what advice would you give someone that is a person of color if they don't have access to a physician that is a person of color? Because as Dr. Augustus mentioned, there are not that many. Um, so mm. what advice would you give pregnant women that are people of color and particularly black women? women what, would you give, what advice would you give them if they have to go to like a white physician? Because that's what they have available. So I don't want to, so that's a good question. Um, and sometimes quite honestly, the black doctors could be the worst ones. <laughs> mm. So it's like, you really just gotta follow your gut. So if you go to a doctor and you feel like they're rushing them, uh, rushing you out of the office, um, or you're asking questions and they're not taking their time to understand you, then bye, move on to the next. Bye, you can Felicia. Hop on. No, let me stop. Yep, bye, Felicia. <laughs> no, bye, Felicia. <laughs> or Philip, I had to throw that you know? in there. <laughs> um because it's just like following your gut and your comfort level and also you know it's important now that you read the ratings hmm. <laughs> read the ratings of the doctors it does not have to be a black doctor uh because like i said i it took me a while to realize that i even had my own biases and I can't say that I didn't, but it's quite possible with those biases that I may have brushed off complaints. I mean, I've never been sued or had any complaints from anybody, but there could have been close calls because of my mindset. Hmm. Um, so it's really, um, you don't have to have a black doctor. You just have to have a doctor with humanism. 
you know, a doctor that actually has empathy and cares. In terms of what... You must have spoke to Dr. Alexa Miesis before you uh, joined us on the program. No. No, I'm joking. (laughs) (laughs) I'm messing with you. I would like to meet that doctor. (laughs) But um, this is me just being completely honest. So in terms of things that you should look out for in the pregnancy... I feel like education not necessarily means that you have like a degree, but education and knowing that pregnancy, like you said, is a vulnerable state. It's a very serious state and anything that doesn't feel normal, you need to complain about it. And perfect examples are like patients who are in the psychiatric ward that come to you. Um, or, you know, who have a mental illness and then they're telling you that, you know, they're having this itching and you're just like, okay, where is this itching? They're going on and it might not amount to anything, but if it was somebody else without a known mental illness, I'm just giving that as an example, mm-hmm. you probably would have taken it a little bit more seriously mm-hmm. and did a little bit more of a workup, like bile acids, skin exam, dermatology consults, stuff like that. So I feel like you should, anything that bothers you in the pregnancy, you talk about it. And if you find that your doctor is brushing you off, go on to the next. And it's okay to hop around with doctors in the first trimester. It gets a little bit harder after the first trimester when you're trying to transfer. Most people may not take you because they're like, maybe you're not a reliable patient. And then that becomes a liability for them. So I would say the second you find out that you're pregnant and the baby has a heartbeat, find a list of like four or five doctors that you've done your research on and see like follow your gut and go with whoever you feel most comfortable with especially when you bring up like a small complaint like i'm feeling cramping some people could say oh that's normal because the uterus is growing but like will that doctor take the time and say what about this cramping how often is it happening because it may not be because of the pregnancy it could be because of like i don't know an ulcer mm-hmm. <laughs> you know i got a flashback to a, a previous show because that's exactly what right? Dr. Miesi said, and how to choose a primary provider. And that was the thing she was like, look, you know, you need to find someone that you are comfortable with, and that will listen to you. Um, And she even made the point that look, even if if I'm your provider, and I don't fit your needs, you move on to the next person, because it's really sort of a mutual relationship. Right. And called uh, it dating, um, which was dope, because I was saying that it was more like a marriage. She's like, nah, look at this like dating. Like if the person isn't working out, then you move on to the next, <laughs> to the next provider. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I agree so with true. that. And I think, I think I tell all of my friends that are expecting, I tell their partners when she goes into labor, you are her advocate. Mm. She needs somebody to speak up for her, pay attention to what everyone's saying to you. If something doesn't seem like it's making sense or adding up, ask questions. Don't be afraid to speak up. Don't be afraid to quote unquote, annoy the nurses. That's what they're there for. If you feel like you're not comfortable with something that's going on, mama is probably going to be out of it because she's in labor, she's in pain. You as the father, you're the advocate. Speak up, pay attention. Don't just show up and not be involved. Pay attention to what's going on hmm. because you could be the person that saves your partner's life. I feel about doulas and their role um, in all of this, especially when we talk about somebody that can coach them through, um, right, this difficult time, and that can serve as a real advocate on uh, behalf of 
of black mothers out there? I'm all for taking my question. Yeah, I, 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 I know I'm a jerk. I should have said looking that. looking at, at an article about this today about, you know, helping black women overcome um, a lot of the issues they have um, in labor is to have a doula, have somebody that's going to be there to advocate for you. And it goes back to the same point of education. So the doula is aware of things to look out for and the doula is um, capable of speaking up on your behalf, even if you're unable to do that because you're in labor. Yep, doulas, doulas are my friend, you know, until you start to give medical advice. <laughs> so there's a fine line, but I love the doulas. I love most of them because they also have, if, if someone has picked their doula correctly, this doula has followed them most of their pregnancy. And I would see you probably maybe 10 to 14 times during the pregnancy, but they may be contacting them every week. You know, so they know the wishes of the patients, which for the most part is, you know, not to have a C-section, but and to have a great delivery experience. Um, but I'm definitely all for the doula. I feel like if there's or any advocate for that case, because uh, I can say even when I was uh, pregnant and delivering, I was just not aware when that pain hits you, you are not. You're not thinking the same way that you normally do. So anybody, it doesn't have to be a doula. It could be your mom. It could be your spouse, your partner, as long as there's somebody there. But then there is a fine line with some of the doulas when they want to they give medical advice. Yeah, that, that's a problem. I was going to actually, and I'm glad mm -hmm. you brought it right back up because that is... I think it's just so crucial that we really just dive into that uh, because, right, we, when we talked about our patients being, one, their own advocates and even having someone that can advocate on their behalf, uh, but at what point, I, I feel like it can be a delicate balance that needs to be struck because there does come a point where maybe someone is making, right, uh, recommendations or saying things that, as you said, conflicts with right the official medical advice of the provider mm -hmm. um and and at this at times what i feel like happens is that there's sort of an adversarial relationship that then right develops because you're prescribing one thing and you have either the patient or whomever is there to um whoever is there accompanying them right they disagree or they have another viewpoint so how can, right, and this is from the patient's perspective, how can we advocate on our own behalves, right? Black women advocate on their own behalf, but not create maybe conflict or a contentious relationship with their providers. I think that if you, you have chosen your physician appropriately and you've been following with them, you should have a certain relationship with your physician. There should be a, a physician-patient relationship where mm -hmm. you're able to sit down and have a conversation. So it's, this is happening. This is the reason why I'm thinking this is what we should do. These are the possible outcomes. And this is the direction that I want to go in. And then give the patient the opportunity to ask questions and feel comfortable with whatever the plan is. I think 
most times if there is a, a patient physician relationship um, and you're not say you're not advising for something that's completely ludicrous, mm-hmm. most people are reasonable. They'll sit down if you're if you're able to express this is my concern. This is the reason why I think we should move forward with this next step. Do you have questions? And you're able to have that dialogue. I think most people are reasonable and they, you know, they will go along with the plan. Yeah. So I agree with Marvell. Also, I would add that I usually ask my patients, like when they're around 35 weeks, if they have a doula. And if they do, to bring their doula into the appointment. Um, or at least one appointment so that we can have a conversation about expectations um, in pregnancy. Mm. Uh, so I agree also with Marvell with developing the relationship and that level of trust that can also um, help, but also you should develop some form of a relationship, even if it's one conversation before with the doula, because sometimes you're not the delivering provider. Uh, sometimes you may go into labor early and you miss the delivery, but at least you'll have somebody who's, I think the doula, if you have one or a family member, is more consistent than a doctor mm. could ever be when it comes to antepartum or even postpartum care. Um, so also, if you don't have the opportunity to meet the doula and you are part of the delivery or someone else is, it's very important to go over the birthing plan and just be realistic. So some of them say, you know, I don't want a vaginal tear. I don't want episiotomy. I don't want this and that. And it's just like, you know, at least for us in that setting, I try to tell Mm -hmm. the patient, you are not in control. I am not in control. This baby is in control. So I don't want you to feel too committed to what the outcome is going to be. Ultimately, my goal is for a safe mommy and a safe baby. Whatever that equals is what I'm going to do. So don't be too committed to a vaginal delivery, too committed to not having a tear, too committed to anything because anything can change at any time. And I'm not in control of that. Right. Perfect. That was, that's basically what I was going to say. That's really the expectation when it comes to pregnancy, because also, you know, you have the bloggers and the YouTubers and then the, also some of the celebrities that have the really flat belly right after they deliver (laughs) their kid. It's just like, Have your own course, be kind to yourself, but also like your expectation should really be no expectation. Mm. Because when you start putting all of these rules and restrictions, it can lead to postpartum depression or postpartum blues because you didn't get what you want, even though you have a healthy baby and you're healthy. Mm. Um, So that's also important when talking to patients you talk to them and you also talk to the people in the room don't ignore them when you walk in you know introduce yourself to the mom and the person in the room get to know their name you're developing this relationship so I think that can also decrease the adversarial like you know comments or things Mm -hmm. like that Um, and it opens more of a dialogue for you to educate them on why you think you're doing what you're doing and also giving them if time permits time to Think about it. And one thing I would like to add is when you're doing your research for um, a physician, check their cesarean rate. Mm. If your goal is to have a vaginal delivery, find out what the rate is for your physician. If their rate Mm -hmm. is a lot higher than the national average, there's a high possibility you're going to end up with a C-section whether or not it's indicated. 
Yep. Yep. Because a lot of unindicated C-sections still happen. A lot of unindicated other stuff still happen, like episiotomies, you know, for the most part, for the most part, they're just not needed. (laughs) And they can have a little bit more complications, a lot more pain after because of what you- Prolonged pain, chronic pelvic pain. So get the stats if you can. And your doctor should know, at least like if you're in an institution, they do track every doctor and their own C-section rate, vacuum delivery rate, laceration rate, things like that. You should be able to have access to that information or they should be able to say it off the top of their head or get back to you. It should not be a question that's ignored. And so essentially you have rights as a patient, uh, Mm -hmm. ladies and gentlemen, rights to ask questions, right to the rights to choose your provider, the rights to, as you said, know those statistics, those critical statistics when it comes to uh, C-sections and uh, things like episiotomies and, and all of this. So ask, I guess that's the biggest thing is really just finding one, a provider that you feel comfortable asking those questions and knowing that it is your right to have those answers. I didn't realize that uh, C-section was something that like you have a national average and then you're supposed to see if the doctor does above or below that national average. Um, And the importance of, I guess, a birthing plan. It seems like from what you're saying that there's a lot more research that a mother-to-be has to um, put into in order to actually figure out how she wants her pregnancy to go. Um, So that that was really cool. I do have two questions though that are not so much related to what we were discussing, uh, but more so in the terms of impacts that COVID might have. Um, so one of them is like, what is your opinion on um, home births? Because it's something that I'm noticing that is in the rise. And how do you think that the lasting effects of COVID, like long COVID with like blood clotting and all heart problems that are coming up, how do you think that might impact how you provide care to your future patients? Let's start with the home birth. What is the reason why we do we do research and we have science and we come up with recommendations for things if we're going to go back to the 1800s? The risk of maternal death at, with all of those home births were very high. So now you, ha- you have to consider um, multiple things. We, we're just finished talking about how Black women are at higher risk of having all of these complications in the pregnancy. And then you add to that delivering at home where you can't monitor the baby prolonged. So I don't know if the baby's in distress or something is happening. Um, If there is a complication where um, there's an arrest of labor, there's an arrest of descent, how long is it going to take you to get to the hospital to get the appropriate access to care that you need Mm. um, in this emergent situation? Um, I think even in residency, we, we, one of the hospitals we trained at was a city hospital and there would, there would be midwives that would do home birth and they would drop the patient off at the last second Mm -hmm. just before, Mm. you know, it's a complete disaster. And now it's not their responsibility anymore. And now this patient has been fully dilated for hours and hours and hours. The baby is impacted. And now you have to try to figure out how do I deliver this baby safely? How do I keep this mother from having a postpartum hemorrhage with, and having to do a hysterectomy on her? There's so many complications that's, that's related to an unsuccessful home birth that to me, I feel like 
not worth it. Mm. Yeah. And I think one of the, the biggest, birth. the biggest advocates for home births died at home having a home birth. Yes. Mm. I'm definitely not for home births. Okay. My sisters even tried to pull that number and I was like, absolutely not because it only takes a second for some ish to hit the fan. Okay. You're, I always tell my mommies, your pregnancy will not be okay until you literally have your baby in your arms because there's shoulder dystocia that can happen. This mm-hmm. is when the shoulders get stuck. This can happen. It's unpredictable for the most part. And unless you have like an actual doctor there to do the maneuvers, it's really hard to deliver these kind of babies. It's been hard even for me. Um, so it's like, there's always something that can happen until the very end. Even when the head is out, you're still holding your breath as a provider because you're just like, is this baby gonna come out? Mm. You know? So definitely I'm not an advocate for home birth, but I do understand why mm. people may want to do it. And it's for reasons that we spoke about before. They don't feel comfortable with their provider, you know? They don't feel or like they're being the, heard. In in hospital setting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what I am for is birthing centers that are in the hospital. I'm all for that. So if you're going to do that, um, or if you want that like homey feel where you don't, they don't have to break the bed, you have a couch and a jacuzzi in there, then go to a birthing center that is directly attached to a hospital, not a birthing center a mile away. You know, the a birthing center that is like literally in the hospital where if there's an emergency or they call a code for whatever reason, someone is there. So that's the other I, thing, right? If you mm-hmm. deliver, if, okay. So if we go through the whole pregnancy, I deliver the baby fine. And then it's a floppy baby. Do you have a pediatric team that can come and resuscitate the baby? Those first few seconds are very important for brain damage and how this baby is going to do long-term. So mm-hmm. now there's an issue with the baby. And now you have to try to make it to a hospital to, for someone to treat the baby. By the time that happens, most times there's already brain damage. Yeah. In terms of the other question regarding like COVID, um, I think there's there needs to be a little bit more research we don't in terms know. of like, it's yeah, because we don't know. <laughs> you know, like with what we do is uh, anyone who has COVID, they are on Lovinox. They're on a blood thinner for four to six weeks, depending on when we caught the um, case, hmm. if it's like uh, and what point in their pregnancy they are. So, you know, it's, compli- it's complicated. There definitely needs to be more research regarding COVID and how we um, handle the moms. You know, they don't even have that much data, even on the vaccine. Um, we're just going off of like small clinical trials and, you know, science has to do something. We couldn't just sit back and watch millions of people die as so you know at this point it's all there there can be no real advice it's mostly trial and error at this point Mm. but at least from the data we have at this point um or at least according to the american college of obstetrics and gynecology they do recommend the vaccine unless that's changed y'all know better than me but uh they do recommend it or as far as the moderna and Pfizer vaccines. Um, yes. 
for especially if for you're now. at high risk of um, mm-hmm. contracting COVID um, because the complications related to contracting COVID as a pregnant person are a lot higher than mm-hmm. any complicated complications that we've seen with the vaccine. Got it. Uh, that's and, a false rumor that's been running around is that the vaccine impacts your fertility i've had many patients or will cause future that. harm to your babies false false yeah. false yeah, that's something that a lot of my um girlfriends are also asking me about and are wondering and if they should wait and i said no <laughs> you should probably go go get it. my sister Excellent was pregnant job. and she got vaccinated and so. The bonus, mm-hmm. and the bonus is that right uh, there are trials coming out, or at least data coming out showing that this, um, once you generate the antibodies from the vaccine, that they actually um, uh, are at least excreted into the breast milk, and so that your baby, right, definitely proponents of breastfeeding uh, here on Health in Harlem, but again by being vaccinated as a mother, you do get a, a good amount of antibodies into your baby through the breast milk and therefore you can indirectly confer immunity to your child. And so just throwing that out there, some good information to know. So as we begin to wrap up, um, and again, I just want to thank you both for really just spending this time with us and our listening audience. What would you say uh, from each of you, what would you say is the the most important message? If there's anything that anybody remembers from this program tonight, what is the most important message that our listeners need to take home? Prepare for pregnancy the same way you prepare for everything else. Do research as much research as possible on what to expect in pregnancy. What are the norms? What are abnormal things? Do research on your physician, um, the person that you are entrusting your life and your baby's life. Ask questions and advocate for yourself no matter, you know, how intimidating the situation may be, um, how uncomfortable you may feel, you're your number one advocate. So advocate for your advocate for yourself and ask as many questions as possible. Yep. Know your rights and complain about everything. Any little thing that's bothering you, whether it's like, I don't care, vaginal itching, that could be a STD, swelling that you've noticed recently, that could be the beginning signs of preeclampsia. If you have a problem, if you're having an issue with anything, talk to your doctor about it. It doesn't always have to be in the visit. There should be portals by now because most people are electronic. If you have a question, shoot the question right away through the portal to your doctor or make a list of questions. But yeah, definitely Know your rights and complain about everything. And can I, I just want to throw in one thing, um, because as we said, and I thank you for the the advice that you gave our listening audience, um, especially when it comes to being right, our own advocates, being advocates of, of each other, especially families, um, advocating on behalf of their loved ones, but also let's advocate as a community, right? We talked about this problem that we're seeing in this country being everything goes back to systemic racism and oppression here in this country and around the world. And so with that said, as communities, as a society, we have to band together. And really when it comes to things like, right, putting our votes where our mouths are, um, where our interests are, being aware of what's happening around us uh, as far as legislation, um, as providers out there listening to this or anybody that's family of a medical provider, putting pressure on each other and really just taking on that challenge as Dr. Augustus did, right? And acknowledging her own 
um, implicit biases or at least understanding that, hey, there are certain things that affect the way I think and even potentially the way that she delivers care. Um, that's something that I've acknowledged uh, in myself and have committed to addressing. Right. And that um, one thing that I, I do always like to leave off with a little bit of optimism uh, in all of this. And we see this being addressed, as we said, at the largest levels, the White House um, essentially having their first proclamation, right, acknowledging uh, Black Maternal Health Week. And so it's starting from the top down. They are pumping millions and millions of, of dollars into expanding Medicaid so we can expand access to care. Um, these are sort of the things that are really just going to help us attack this problem. Also getting funding out there to retrain physicians and other healthcare providers so that we can deal with those implicit biases and really just all of the, um, or as, as much as possible, just tackle it from the top down as far as uh, these systemic problems. And so with that, ladies and gentlemen, I want to, again, thank our guests, Dr. Augustus and Dr. Maloney for joining us. And also we thank uh, Anastasia for joining us uh, on the program and just um, in all of her capacities and service to the community and health in Harlem as a co-host, as a producer as well. Also, we just want to send a shout out to the rest of our team. So Giorgio, Reed, um, who else is out there? Ashley, Michael Mia, Holmes, Michael Holmes um, DJ, Ben Suferi. Just shout out to you all. Hope you all are doing well and can't wait to have you on the next show. And ladies and gentlemen, we just thank you in advance for sharing whatever you learned on this program with anyone that will listen. And also, as we said, engage us in dialogue. If you have questions, comments, concerns, whatever it may be, right? We're listening. As you said, we need you to, to find a provider that's listening and willing to engage you. Well, guess what? We're here um, willing to provide you with information, um, trustworthy, reliable information, and that can only be enhanced by a dialogue with you. So hit us up on our Facebook page, hit us up on Twitter, hit us up on Podbean, leave a comment on uh, Apple Podcasts, whatever it takes. If you can find a message board, that we're on just hit us up there and we will get back to you um, in answering those questions with that said ladies and gentlemen this show is dedicated to the memory of miss gloria thomas harlem take care of yourself <laughs>